This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Julian Morrow. Welcome to The Roundtable. On The Roundtable today, we're talking about how to catch a cheat. Because it seems like there's been a lot of cheating in the news lately. In September, five-time world chess champion Magnus Carlsen walked out of an in-person chess tournament game against teenage prodigy Hans Niemann after just one move. September 4th, 2022, he loses a game to Hans Niemann over the board in St. Louis in the Singfield Cup. The next day, he withdraws from the tournament and the, the whole chess world goes bananas. There was also a huge controversy in the fishing world. Watch closely when the events organizer decides to check the belly of one of those fish. We got weights and fish! There we go! From then on, it's a mob calling fell in a way only true fishermen can. Yes, the video of uh, the tournament director of the Lake Erie Walleye Trail uh, cutting open the winning catch and finding lead weights inside them went very much viral. So that's a case of fish fixing, but there's also been this... The allegations are that there are at least a dozen teachers within the CLRG, the biggest, oldest and most prestigious Irish dance organisation in the world, who have been engaged in what's become known as fesh fixing. So fish fixing and fesh fixing and a retired judge actually handed down a report into allegations of fesh fixing, what's been described as the biggest ever scandal in Irish dancing with disciplinary hearings along the way. That all happened this week. I'm not sure if cheating in all manner of pursuits is on the rise or if we're just hearing about it more or maybe we're getting better at catching cheats. Well, on the roundtable today, we've brought together a group of people who've engaged with the question of how to catch a cheat in different ways and in very different fields. And we'll take a look at the escalating role of data and artificial intelligence in all this as well. Our guests are Kenneth Reagan, a professor in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Buffalo, New York, who is a world expert in detecting cheating in chess. Welcome, Kenneth. Thank you very much for having me on. It's great to have you. Uh, we're also joined by uh, Professor Philip Dawson, who's an Associate Director uh, at the Centre for Research in Assessment and Digital Learning at Deakin University and knows all about uh, cheating at a tertiary level. Uh, welcome, Philip. Hey, Julian. Great to be here. Great to have you. We're also joined uh, by Catherine Ordway, Professor in Sports Integrity Research Lead and so sorry, Associate Professor at the University of uh, Canberra. Welcome to you, Catherine, too. Very good morning. Uh, look, I thought I'd start the roundtable by asking each of you to maybe just chart out the career path that led you to have a professional interest in uh, the, the work of detecting cheats. Uh, Kenneth, could we start with you? Yes, I'm actually a computational complexity theorist uh, and uh, deal with the P versus NP question, one of the Millennium Prize problems. I do quantum computing. Uh, I did not ever want to design a chess program, but when a chess cheating scandal broke out at the 2006 World Championship match, I felt called to action. Mm. And writing a program to detect this was different and novel. There you go. Yeah. So, so, and you've really been involved in the the, the use of AI to detect uh, cheating in in chess. Um, is AI the only way to, to to really detect the sort of cheating that goes on in chess these days, uh, Ken? Well, for when you have over the board chess, where you only have the moves to go on, 
I deal with the statistical side. And then there's the question of observing the players and the spectators and anything else for any suspicious movement or signaling, such as has been a factor in the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire game and similar quiz shows Mm. in the UK. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll come back to that, of course, because, yeah, the, the, there's really been a world fascination with what's been going on in uh, uh, the, the top echelons of chess. Uh, Phil Dawson, how did you come to uh, have a professional interest in uh, cheating at universities? Yeah, so I was uh, sitting in a demonstration of some exam software and they were saying, oh, you know, this is so secure, you couldn't cheat in it. And I put my hand up and I said, oh, what if I did this? What if I did that? And they said, oh, no, 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 only, you know, someone super clever could possibly do that or it's not possible. And I thought, oh, I'm going to give it a go. So I did. I went I went home and I was able to cheat in these different ways. And I published a paper called Five Ways to Hack and Cheat in Bring Your Own Device Electronic Exams, which kind of says what the, the title yeah. is. Yeah. It's about the five ways. Yeah. Well, so, so, so it's your natural talent for cheating which has got you interested in this, Philip. Well, I mean, look, I, I think there is a benefit in kind of thinking in that way, you know, thinking, yeah. Let, let's try and break this. It's kind of like the white hat hacker approach. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, and, and Catherine Ordway, um, uh, how have you come to, you know, think about uh, cheating in a professional sense? What's the, what's the career path been for you? Well, I'm a sports lawyer, and in the lead-up to the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games, I worked for a law firm that did all the legal work for the Australian Olympic Committee. And one of the things that we needed to do prior to inviting the world into our Olympics was to clean up our own backyard in terms of anti-doping. So that was my introduction in getting all the policies in place for all the different national sports involved in the Olympic program, and then, of course, prosecuting them under the anti-doping policies for in front of the Court of Arbitration for Sport. So my interest was in terms of a, a level playing field and making sure that we could um, make claim legitimately that we were a country that believed in clean sport and mm. that we wanted to to make sure that, that everybody um, felt that these were true results when mm. they watched them. And Catherine, as well as being a sports lawyer and a consultant for sports integrity, as, as you've described, um, you're also quite the athlete yourself, Olympic handball, state rugby and, and fencing. Uh, on the ground, did, when you were involved in, in these sports, did you, did you see much evidence of cheating and anti-competitive behaviour? Uh, well, I, the disadvantage I suppose I had from experiencing cheating is that I play women's sport, so there just isn't the money <laughs> in women's sport. Right. Yes, we, we, we hope for the day where the stakes are high enough. that. The... <laughs> That's right. So in women's, women's sport and back and when I was playing at the elite level then, there just weren't the professional opportunities. We didn't have the WBBL and the AFLW and, and all those other opportunities where um, perhaps the risks are higher now. But, of course, in terms of profile, um, and I'll be interested in what the other panel members say, but, but women haven't traditionally been big risk takers that are prepared to ruin their careers for um, for money or fame mm. in the sporting setting in the same way that we've seen men do it. Yes, yeah, and there are there are some interesting uh, studies in in the different ways that uh, people of all, all different types uh, do tend to cheat. But let's come back to chess uh, because it really is sort of consuming the world's attention at the moment. Uh, Ken Regan, uh, Hans Neumann has admitted to cheating um, as a minor and is banned from competing uh, on chess 
com, and, and they put out a 70-page report concluding that he <coughs> likely cheated in more than 100 online matches. Do you agree with that conclusion? And also, what implications does chess.com's report uh, have for the innuendo about his participation in in-person chess competitions? Yes, those two great questions. I'm cited in the report as agreeing with just over half of the uh, accusations against Hans Niemann. And um, but I am not able to reproduce the chess.com findings and others. I must hasten to add that chess.com has a second vein of evidence gathered through their interface. Indeed, on page 58, they refer to toggling or loss of window focus as one of them. Mm. So it's possible that that other evidence is more determinative than my statistics. Uh, now, the st- however, the report concurs with my view that there is no evidence that Hans Niemann has cheated in over-the-board chess, nor in online chess since 2020, and he has, in fact, been allowed to play in other competitions sponsored by chess.com, including the Coinbase Rapid this year, with a third account. Right. So uh, it does seem then that, you know, that there's a question about participation in online um, chess, but cheating in in-person chess is very different, isn't it, Ken? That's right. And here's the the two points. You know, I'm a professor at a university. Academic integrity is the same whether online course or in-person exam. But the university is purview over both kinds of cheating. Whereas in chess, the online platforms have purview over the accounts of their subscribers, whereas FIDE, the International Chess Federation, has the jurisdiction over in-person chess tournaments that use FIDE ratings. Mm. So this has led to a, a jurisdictional issue, but as far as the honor code of players are concerned, almost everyone agrees cheating is cheating. Uh, but can you think Hans Niemann should be allowed to continue uh, competing in uh, in-person chess tournaments? As long as he is officially in good standing with the organization sponsoring these tournaments, hmm. and currently he is because the jurisdictional issues have not been resolved, and uh, there are quite a few, there are several other players uh, of rank almost or equivalent to Neiman, who are in a similar position, ah, uh, but against whom no such showy action has been taken. Uh, yes, the the test of of good standing sounds like one. It might be a bit harder to design an AI program to to answer. Uh, but it's interesting, Ken, that you you mentioned. You know, your, your your day job is in universities, and that's obviously something we wanted to talk uh, to uh, Philip, but also you about Phil. H- how widespread is cheating in universities today, and what methods do tertiary students tend to use to cheat? Look, it's a really, it's an interesting question how widespread it is because part of that is how do you define cheating? Mm. You know, um, when I was in school, I didn't read the novels that they gave us because I thought they were dead boring, but I read these study guides or things I could find on the internet that kind of summarised the books and I did okay as a result. Now, now some of the literature will say that I cheated in high school. I, I don't think it was cheating. I think it was just smart study. Um. But yeah, if we go to something like uh, what proportion of students pay someone else to do their work for them, 
We got reasonable evidence it's around 10% of Australian students are doing that at some stage in their studies. 10% at some stage in their studies. Yeah. That's, that, that seems very high. Uh, do we think it's higher than um, sort of old school cheating used to happen before these things like, you know, paid essay writing services and the like uh, were in existence? Uh, look, I was at a sort of an event recently and there was a bit of an argument about that. And I would say there's some people who will, will cite evidence that, you know, over the pandemic, the use of one of these big commercial sites that students use that uh, at one stage was worth $12 billion, that billion with a B, um, use of that particular site doubled in that early pandemic peak period. But then other people will cite other data and say, nah, nah, People have always been paying someone else to do their work for them and you know, ghost writings as old as the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, what sort of techniques are used to catch university cheats and how effective are they? So we, we've done a bunch of studies. We've done studies where all we did was say to people, um, try and tell if someone else has written this work. So we've given them lots of normal assignments and a bunch of bought assignments. And gee, about 60% of the time they could spot the bought ones, which amazed us. Mm. Um, we've trained people, which brought them up to about 80% of the time being able to spot it. And then there's also sort of AI tools that can compare writing and see, is this writing likely all done by the same person or perhaps has someone paid someone to do uh, a particular piece of it. Mm, interesting. Yes. Um, yeah, Ken, Ken let, let, let's come back to you because obviously you said you were you were drawn to, to writing a program to detect cheating in chess when the controversy happened. But uh, have you been drawn to, to writing programs to detect cheating in your day job? Or what, what's your assessment of what Phil said about uh, cheating in tertiary institutions in Australia? Well, in fact, I have realized this year that the likely next step for my program, rather than rating the difficulty of standardized tests, will be trying to detect cheating with bots such as GPT-3, which given a specification can compose a surprisingly humanly readable essay mm. on the given topic. And telling that apart from a genuine human written essay will be a great challenge. What gives me hope is that GPT-3 is based on the principle of finding the next best word, which aligns with the AlphaZero principle of finding the next best move, working at chess and Go and other games. Fascinating stuff. Um, Catherine Ordway, uh, you, you've heard what uh, Phil and Ken have said about cheating detection in terms of university work. Um, is that something you've turned your mind to as well? Um, there's a range of cheating too in sport, and so you can ask uh, about uh, the percentage of athletes that might be using performance-enhancing drugs, for example, and in cheating to win kind of setting. And there's estimates, it's very difficult to tell, but perhaps up to 20% of athletes they're suggesting may use performance-enhancing drugs. Then there's the kind of cheating to lose setting, which is the match-fixing, which is a gambling-related um, event which in Australia attracts a criminal sanction. So to detect that, we use um, uh, agencies that review the betting market. So particularly in a country like Australia, which is very heavily regulated, we can watch the betting markets for any anomalies. Um, because in sports like, um, I'm thinking the closest comparison to what we've been talking about with chess is in the esports or the gaming environment where 
And there was a recent case that the Victorian police prosecuted where it wasn't possible for anyone involved in the sport to detect on the um, in real time that there was cheating, but it was because of the betting that they mm. were able to determine that there was, in fact, cheating. Of course, in anti-doping, you can detect through trafficking and kind of tracking back through the distributors as well as um, getting the analytics from the laboratory. That's really interesting. And have, and have you had to look at things like um, uh, plagiarism in the work that you've done as well? Because I'm an academic, then every academic has a responsibility to try to determine whether or not there are issues with the work that is being done. So um, the main work that we do is to try to prevent it happening in the first place. It's so that we will change the assessment every year and that we make sure it's a bespoke um, topic that's been in the news and that it's it's current and, and uh, it's much harder to um, create a kind of contract cheating environment because it's so specific and we ask them to look at a, a particular case or a report that's just been done or mm. something like that. See, that's quite interesting because um, in a way that... check the back end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's quite interesting because in a way that, that suggests that the, the, the need to be vigilant about cheating um, is sort of freshening up courses as well and making sure that, that um, you know, content uh, changes and is always up to date. That might be an, an inverse benefit. Oh, Indeed, the most so. recent cheat. Yeah, Ken, yeah. I was saying, indeed, the most recent catch in chess was caught by vigilant on-site arbiters before it ever got to the question of my statistics. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm also interested in what uh, Catherine was saying about, uh, you know, trying to change the culture of the organisation to reduce the chances of cheating. I'd love to get your thoughts uh, on that. Both will come to you first, Phil, and then back to Ken. Yeah, so it certainly is a culture thing. And, and yeah, this speaks to a bigger bigger issue of do we want to graduate students from universities who didn't cheat because they were watched or do we want to graduate students who didn't cheat because they knew it was the wrong thing to do? <laughs> and, you know, I, I want to graduate lawyers, doctors, engineers, artists, whoever, who have that ethics uh, capability inside of them, not, not just people who are afraid of getting in trouble. Yeah, very much so. Um, Ken, your thoughts on that? Yes. Well, I mean, in-person chess, cheating is still relatively rare, but online chess, uh, I've had some discussions with a small group, including Grandmaster David Smurden uh, at Australian University. Um, and uh, so we both concur that humanizing the online experience as much as possible, visualizing your opponent and the tournament directors is one measure on top of the technological uh, means that are attempted to try to reduce the cheating rate. Yes. Uh, the cheating rate is higher online, although it's not quite as high as the 10% that was mentioned before. Yeah, yeah, it's, th that's really interesting. The, the psychological aspects of these things often uh, also produce the tells. Um, but uh, Ken, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about um, what your program does to detect cheating. And and does the approach that you use for chess, is that translatable to other things maybe like academic plagiarism or, or, or is uh, the, the, the sphere of chess quite unique in terms of um, how to pick a cheat? Yeah, so first my program is a predictive analytical model. 
of very much the kind that economists use to model consumer behavior, such as which choice of toothpaste or metro op option to get downtown. And it's the kind of model used by assurance companies to gauge the probability of risk of, say, to a home in a neighborhood from damage by fire, storm, or earth movement based on the rating of the neighborhood in which the home is built, the risk rating. Well, I use a chess rating and a very similar equation. In my case, the probabilities I project are the choices of moves by a player of that rating. My model gives me aggregate projections for series of positions and games, and importantly, confidence intervals from those projections from which I'm able to judge unlikelihood by standard means, including Z-scores. Right. So, so basically you say, some, look, someone's playing too well, given how they, their stats look. Too well, but also it's a measurement of concordance to a computer more specifically. Right. I must say I was involved in one case in Australia where I measured the quality as being 3,000. And then when I put the settings for 3,000 into my model, I still got a significant positive for like fidelity to the computer agent. Mm, that's that, that's so really not just quality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so do you think that uh, the approach that, that you've developed um, would apply, could apply more broadly than, uh, than chess? By the sounds of things, by definition, it does. Well, as it is, I was trying to carry it over to model standardized tests. I thought maybe insider trading, as you were mentioning before, would be an application. That was what I had in mind in 2006. But chess has kept, kept me busy enough that I've not had time <laughs> to take these steps yeah, in other areas, right. especially the pandemic. No doubt. No, no, no doubt, Ken. Um, yeah, well, you, you found too much of a growth industry to be able to um, cure problems in other places. That's, uh, that's fascinating stuff. We're talking about catching cheats on the roundtable today. Um, and, and Catherine Ordway, um, hearing the way Ken talked about designing a, an approach to sort of identifying the likelihood of cheating in a very specific area of chess, does that resonate with experiences um, or approaches that you've come across in a whole range of sports? I guess it does in a, in a couple of different ways. I, mean, I guess it's traditional that in anti-doping we do profiling and profiling of the sports and the disciplines to determine what the likelihood is of performance enhancement um, through different types of drugs. And then we will do profiling also around the kind of risk countries or risk athletes looking at their own personal situation. Are they returning from an injury? Are they looking to make money from a particular event? Is there a selection event coming up? All of those sorts of things have been done for decades, really, to try to get the best bang for your buck because anti-doping testing is extremely expensive. And so we, we want to do that. But I was thinking about where it could be used, as I mentioned, in esports and gaming, and that seems like a really obvious yeah. way that they would need to start putting more and more AI because the money that's involved in in that um, realm now is just extraordinary. It, it yeah. far surpasses anything that we're doing in the in the regular sport world. Absolutely. Uh, Catherine, you, you recently wrote a book, I think it was last year, called Restoring Trust in Sport, Corruption Cases and Solutions. What, what kinds of case studies did you focus on? 
We tried to find best practice examples of where we were able to restore trust um, after a major scandal. We didn't want to make it a book of misery. Um, and so I spoke to colleagues around the world that were had worked on the particular cases. And so we looked at examples, for example, for one is from the Czech Republic, where they had a major scandal involving their biggest sport, which is ice hockey, and it was the biggest club in Prague with the biggest name athlete who had gone on to build up this club. And he was taking bribes, essentially, from parents to say, your son will be selected in the team if you give me this money for the club. And, of course, the club never saw it, just went into his pocket. So that caused a huge scandal. And in terms of restoring trust, then what they did is develop a whistleblowing system and worked with Transparency International and another NGO in order to to make sure that people had confidence in, in their sport going forward. So that's just one of the examples. But we also looked at a local one with, with Tennis Australia working very closely with Victorian police and, and how they use the interagency collaboration, the information sharing between policing and sports organisations to make sure that our premier event, the Australian Open, is really strong and um, match fixing is prevented or detected. Mm, mm. I, I think one of the really interesting things about the, the Hans Neiman case is the the impact that just the, the sheer innuendo of uh, allegations of cheating can can have on someone and i suppose that situation of someone who says well someone who is caught cheating um, but also has an incredible uh, talent and how to deal with sort of rehabilitating people who have um you know sort of lapsed in judgment if nothing else phil is that something that you know if 10 percent of university students are, are cheating that universities need to consider as well not sort of making it one strike and you're out yeah look i think we do need to have ways for people to to make good um one of the approaches that i really like is at the university of new south wales they have this thing called uh, courageous conversations where you can actually come forward as a student who has cheated and say, look, I've done the wrong thing, I'd like to make it right, and they'll help work you through sort of a process. You still get in trouble, there's still punishment, but there's help to, to get better and they also help you if you're you know, experiencing blackmail, which some of these commercial cheating companies unfortunately do. They come after you for more money after you've cheated on an ongoing basis. Right. Fascinating. Um, and I gather, Phil, that you are speaking at a symposium uh, coming up. Uh, what's your key message going to be there? Symposium 2022. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've got a symposium called Challenging Cheating, where we're getting together a bunch of people from around the world. Some of them are cheating researchers. Some of them are totally different types of people like criminologists and philosophers. And we're trying to kind of unstick the problem of cheating. In, in academia, we've kind of reached this point where on the one side, we've got people who say, um, we just got to trust students and we've got to support them to do the right thing. And on the other side, we've got these people who disagree and say, no, no, you've got to surveil students and you've got to monitor them. And we've just kind of gotten stuck. We want to explode the topic of cheating and build something new if we can. Mm. I was interested as well that you, you, I think you're going to be talking about the idea of cheating as a type of disengagement. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think there's, a, there's one way to look at cheating, which is I'm doing this because the stuff you're getting me to do is, is boring or, or terrible or irrelevant. 
And we do need to focus on engagement as a way to actually get students in, to get them motivated, to give them that sort of intrinsic motivation to do the work rather than just trying to jump through our hoops and get the marks. Well, it's uh, been a fascinating discussion. Time is getting away from us a little bit, but uh, so I've probably got only the opportunity to come back to each of our guests for one little comment. But um, Ken, Regan, your thoughts on this idea of rehabilitation for people who've acknowledged or been caught uh, cheating, whether that's in chess or academia? It's been very much put into practice by chess.com with Neiman himself and with other players. And this is part of the discussion that lies ahead. Uh, for the community. Let me say one thing of connection to Catherine, which is that uh, our chess regulations are very much framed to be uh, similar to doping. We call chess cheating e-doping, and the chair of our FIDE Fair Play Commission, Salomea Zaksaita of Lithuania, has a doctorate in sporting law. Fascinating. Uh, thank you very much, Ken Regan, for your participation in the conversation today. And Catherine Ordway, um, uh, what about yeah rehabilitation in uh, for sports cheats? I, th I think it's a topic that we are constantly grappling with because proportionality is at the heart of every mm. legal system. And so, to some athletes will say, "Well, if you've been caught cheating, particularly doping, then you should be out for life." Um, but is that reasonable when you're talking about an 18-year-old who who might have been coerced into getting involved through their coach or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the challenge, isn't it, is to be fair. And and athletes will say that they're forever Googleable because their name yes. was there. Yeah, the consequences um, change. Yeah, exactly. And so you go we to a job in an investment bank. <laughs> We abide by a three-year max ban for a first offence under Swiss sporting law. There you go. Fascinating. Well, look, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you very much to Professor Ken Regan, Professor Philip Dawson and Catherine Ordway, Sports Integrity Research Lead and Associate Professor at the University of Canberra. Thanks to you all for participating in the roundtable today. Thanks. Thank you very much. And that's all we have time for. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Julian Morrow. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.